Welcome to our 29th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Janisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the Wajuk people as the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As each one of you online and those of you that have joined us in the room today can testify, our businesses can simply not operate in isolation. Often we look inside and say, why did I get this? Or why is my business not perhaps performing as well as I'd like? Yet more often than not, it is those businesses that are constantly looking outside their doors and understanding how to leverage relationships, build partnerships and focus on long-term organisations and others that actually help them do business. It is those stakeholders that we form conscious alignments that help us form our vision and take it forward much more quickly than if we sit and focus solely on the inside. And this is even more pronounced in a community like Fremantle. For nearly a decade, I've had the privilege of advising companies across Australia on social performance and stakeholder engagement to get projects off the ground, build reputation and gain social capital in industries where that isn't often easy. And one thing I learnt through this process is that the most successful businesses integrate stakeholder relationships into their vision from day one. They understand how to profile those who impact their businesses most, how to build grassroots relationships that generate revenue and bank support for times when these relationships are actually essential for survival. Be it media, government, advocacy groups, suppliers, industry associations, or even just your own community networks. These relationships don't just happen, they require strategy, thought, and ongoing attention. And as I introduce our panel today, I encourage all of our listeners and those in the room, if they haven't already, just to mentally start a list on just how many people they interact with on a daily basis and how many people outside their internal teams impact on their decisions and their ability to grow every single day. And that then leads me to introduce first on our panel this morning. First up, we have Matt Hammond, Acting Director, City Business. Matt joins us from the City of Fremantle's economic development team and, as I mentioned, is currently looking at the whole of business for the city. A large number of stakeholders in that group, Matt. <laughs> Matt has significant experience in leveraging stakeholder relationships to create regional economic benefit. He's a committee member of the City's and Emerging Precincts Committee for the Property Council of Western Australia, a previous board member of Destination Perth, and he drives visitation to Fremantle. <coughs> He's the mastermind behind the Visit Fremantle campaign and Matt has also spent time as a manager of development and tourism for the City of Albany. He holds a Bachelor of Tourism and Sustainable Development from Murdoch University. Matt has also been instrumental in supporting these podcasts and forums from day one and I've never had a chance to publicly thank you for that commitment and support, Matt. So a very uh, official thank you to the City of Fremantle for allowing us uh, to get to our 29th podcast. Matt, building a brand like Visit Fremantle and developing the successful destination marketing strategy for Fremantle over the last few years is a great example of how stakeholder relationships can drive change and success. Can you elaborate for us just on your initial objectives for the campaign and how you brought all of those stakeholders together to help drive it? Absolutely. So um, we, we started the journey, I guess, for 
visit Fremantle probably four years ago now when we developed a new destination marketing strategic plan. Um, the really important part of that was we actually formed a group external to the city to help us drive the development of that. Um, we realised that we're not the experts in tourism and visitation and we need to talk to the experts who, who work with us to deliver that. So we developed that plan and we've, we've been following it to a T. Um, a big part of that plan has been reaching out to businesses and stakeholders in the industry to ensure that they adopt the new brand that we've developed. So this is Fremantle, is the new, new brand that we've developed. We, we have Visit Fremantle, which is a call to action, and we've developed a visual identity around, around the brand. So what has been critical to the success of that brand, I guess, is businesses adopting it for themselves and using it in their own ways. Um, everything we've done, the content we've created, the campaigns we've delivered have been for businesses because essentially the product we are selling is the businesses of Fremantle. So without the businesses themselves engaging in what we do, we, we don't think we're successful. So we've had to, I guess, develop toolkits and make it as, easily, as easy as possible for businesses to engage with the brand. That's included every step of the way, making sure we're keeping people updated on individual campaigns, what we're up to, and also um, being really clear on how you can engage with the brand and, and the different parts of it. Marketing can be technical and not everyone understands marketing and not everyone is in the business of marketing. So we've made sure along the way that we reach out to people and provide all of the materials and information that they need to get the most out of the brand. Um, but, but moving forward, selling the destination, it's, it's fundamental that the businesses need to be a part of that. And we're continuing to learn how we do that and how we better engage businesses along the way. Um, it's not just something you get right straight away. We're, we're still learning and we need to continue to talk to businesses about that and get their feedback on that. And that's like all good relationships in many ways. It is a constant iterative process of learning and growing together. And one of the things I find really interesting in the Visit Fremantle and the This Is Fremantle campaign is just how visually driven it was. And I think by setting a tone of this is the imagery we expect, this is how you sell your vision, you help to sort of not only educate, I guess, the businesses along the way, but take them on a journey of what the asset is and what you're really selling through that process. Absolutely. Just maintaining that consistency of brand and enabling a way for all businesses to participate at that level, um, even to the point where we do now go into businesses and develop content for them. Mm -hmm. um, we do a, a monthly retail flat lay photo shoot where we bring all of those different products together and we find unique ways to, I guess, push collections of product out um, so that we're, we're selling the experience rather than an, an individual product. Absolutely, and I guess aligning both objectives in that the, the businesses get something in terms of profiling their own products, but they also learn through that process and that you guys get the content that you need. Absolutely. That's a great example. Uh, next on, on the panel, and we're very, very grateful to have Tom Mueller with us this morning, particularly uh, given Dan Ali is launching on Friday. I can't even begin to imagine what's going through your head at the moment, Tom, so thank you so much for being here. I'm originally from Switzerland. Tom now calls Fremantle Western Australia or Wujak Noongar home. And we are so lucky to have that um, opportunity to have you here in our midst on a constant basis, Tom. Tom is an established multidisciplinary artist with an active international practice spanning the realms of site responsive, temporal and permanent projects. His work has included uh, in major exhibitions and institutions, including the National at the Carriage Works, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Adelaide Biennale, Biennale de Chaux de Fond, and the upcoming North Alps Trenal 
in Japan. You can tell it's early in the morning and my birthday and the way I'm getting through that pronunciation, but let's keep going. Um, he has been the recipient of multiple Australian grants, um, including uh, the inaugural winner of the Qantas Contemporary Art Prize a mid-career for fellowship from the Department of Culture and the Arts. And in 2009, he won the Basel International Residency Program through the Christoph Mienor Stunglung. You're just testing me this morning with this, aren't you really, Tom? <laughs> but let's keep going. In parallel to his personal practice, Tom is also the co-founder and artistic director of the Fremantle Biennale, which, as I mentioned, launches this week. Tom, you regularly posit far-reaching analytical links and associations between seemingly distinct but invariably interconnected elements together that compromise the architecture of our world. And in a way, it is in creating the links between those interconnecting elements that you build a festival like Fremantle Biennale, from relationships with the artists to funders, sponsors and the community. I'm really interested in, in how you go about creating that long-term partnership from the beginning, and especially when it's related to such an artistic vision and often a difficult vision to get yeah. people to come along the journey with you. Yeah, thank you. Good question. Um, I think... Partnerships and relationships are at the very heart of what we do. Like, we wouldn't exist without having these multiple elements playing into one idea. So what often happens, we um, get propositions from the artistic community and we really enable and facilitate for them to become more ambitious about their thinking. And equally, we then approach um, various stakeholders, whether it's local governments or corporate sponsors or other community members, to also become part of the vision and to empower all the parties to basically single-handedly generate and develop one idea to become a reality. And I think that takes trust and confidence mm -hmm. and you've got to make sure that it's not just about the artists being celebrated but also about all these other parties that come in and they must be given room and scope to feed in and to help grow and nurture um, a particular idea. So I think that's an important starting premise. We allow ourselves very long lead times. We don't usually turn things around in six months. We have a two-year process. And I think the research and development phase is really important in bringing um, those conversations into bearing and then essentially um, bringing each party to contribute, but making sure that, as Matt said before, there's certain experts in the field who know what they're doing to make sure that we also trust and empower these parties to do what they do best. Um, Look, all the projects we usually come up with are pretty epic in scale. We'd like to do things that are of a very innovative nature. And um, sometimes we have to push the envelope a bit. That creates challenges and resistance. But I think in that resistance, you start to generate um, interesting um, conversations. And that stimulation is really part of what defines a community in many ways. You know, Who are we? What's the whole identity building process behind what Fremantle is today? what it might have been and the perception of it. So how we can change that conversation really informs the way we start building festival. And the notion of being much more place responsive is not so much about imposing a vision, but it's about unearthing and maybe listening to what's here already and giving that another voice or a different manifestation. And I think there's a couple of things I'd love to explore as we go through, but that idea of long-term relationships and starting with that vision early. And I'm sure at times you throw an idea in and people go, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding. And then six months later, they're like, oh, maybe, <laughs> and come around to it. But also that idea of trust, and I'd love to explore that with you in a little while. Claire. In addition to being one of the most passionate advocates for Fremantle and your community, I know that you have spent many decades developing beautiful crafted campaigns that bring 
your client's brands to life in intimate detail. Working with clients after leaving a traditional corporate life, you were able to spend time immersing yourself and indulging in the time to allow ideas to percolate, which I guess is a big theme of what Tom's already articulated, dissolve and re-emerge as something more precise, more effective and quite audacious at times. And I think the Republic of Fremantle campaign goes to the heart of audaciousness. <laughs> your company, Detail Marketing Communications, is a fully integrated communications agency specialising in the lifestyle, culture and community sectors. You know great things happen when passionate individuals work together and in bringing these groups together help organisations raise awareness, create love for their brand and develop flow on business. You work to blend a marketing and communications strategy into an organisation's business plan to ensure a successful and profitable outcome. As experts in strategic marketing communications, public relations, publicity, promotion, styling and events, you have created big concepts for organisations like the Fremantle Biennale, the City of Fremantle, Karen Up Shopping Centre and, as I mentioned, the crew at the Republic of Fremantle. We know success is always in the detail and I think you've demonstrated that over and over again, right down to the beautiful images, even on your personal pages that you um, create and curate. Claire, in starting to put together a strategic marketing and communication strategy, how do you begin to identify the relevant stakeholders and start to bring them together to make such an impact for your clients? Well, I think it's actually right at the beginning. You just have to find out what the objectives are. And when clients come to us, sometimes they don't really know what their objectives are. They just come in and are looking for a solution. And sometimes they don't actually know what the problem already is. So it's about having conversations and distilling it right down. Um, and working out whether they're wanting to build a brand, if they're wanting to move their brand, if they're looking to make a profit or many of other things or just create more relationships for their own business. Um, and a lot of our strategies are very long-term. So people might come to us looking for an immediate fix for one issue and then we can work with them through that process to work out what the bigger problems are or what the opportunities that may have, and then we start to create those relationships in a longer time frame. Um, how do you identify the relationships that can help those strategies come into life? Um, I guess it's what you were talking about earlier. I mean, it's sitting down and looking at what the opportunities are. And we always like to start with an audacious plan and go to our clients with something that they might not imagine and we will go to people that we think that they could work with um, and put an audacious plan to them and bring people together. Often people will initially start with a less big idea um, for fear that they won't be able to create something to come to life. So by going out to people with the big idea, you can really get people thinking um, and imagining a different opportunity and a different outcome and bringing people together in that way often reaps surprising and delightful outcomes mm -hmm. that people didn't expect. Um, but you've got to have courage and you've got to go out to people and say, trust me. Mm. And, um, and generate that excitement and enthusiasm around yeah. it because I think often, particularly for smaller businesses, you feel like you're a really small business but when you start engaging and getting other people excited in the vision, it's amazing how many people, particularly in communities, are willing to get on board and support you and that just helps you grow along with yeah, it. Yeah, I think absolutely right. I think um, getting people on board 
and taking them on your journey with you, whether it's a personal journey or a brand's journey, is really exciting. It's about identifying what makes each of us unique, and that's an individual or a business. Because we are all unique, we just need to really work hard at distilling what that really is. And sometimes we might think we know what makes us unique um, and modesty might come into play with that <laughs> and you sell yourself short and as an individual or a business in yeah. all cases. Um, and you've just, you've got to trust people. You've got to let people take you to greater places. It's so true. And I think you're right in that not only do sometimes we not know what's unique, we sometimes forget how interested other people are in that story. I remember the day that Fromage ended up in the New York Times and I was like, what the hell? How is our tiny business that we created here ended up on that platform? And it was because it was new, unique at the time and no one else was doing it. And so even something really simple, if you really hone in on something very, very fine, it can actually help that grow and tell that story. And again, we've seen you do that over and over. Yeah. And look, and I think for all businesses, the relationships can start anywhere. Mm. You know, and it's one of my favourite things is a Fremantle street meeting. You know, you walk to get your lunch and you bump into somebody and you start to have a conversation. I think that's how um, poor old Tom got stuck with us because um, we just kept picking on him, you know, when we bumped into him on the street. Um, but it can happen anywhere. Mm. You can imagine a potential partner and you can just send them an email. And people, random emails can reap great rewards as, as can bumping into people on the street. So you've just got to have the courage to reach out to people and say we can do great things together. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful point. And someone who does great things with a large number of businesses at once is Michael Della from Director of Fremantle Tours. Michael is a winner of not one, but two of our leadership awards for contribution to Fremantle. He is the founder of Fremantle Tours together with his lovely wife, Lucy, and they have built a business around the shared love of their hometown, customer service, and enhancing people's experiences through incredibly strong local relationships. As the driving force behind Fremantle Tours, Michael calls upon his eight years of tourism experience as well as 16 years of customer service to deliver the best experience possible. Their tours cover walking, biking, eating, drinking, as well as themed tours of street art walks, street art beer, bikes, heritage festivals, ice creams and even bakeries. There's a lot of passion in all of those stories, Michael. Your business is built on the premise that by showing off Fremantle, you attract more and more people back to the city, which again and again helps all of us build a great story for not only our own business, but the city itself. And as you often say, you just make the pie bigger rather than fighting over the crumbs. And I think that's an incredible attribute to bring into business. The more people that visit Fremantle, as you say, makes it better for all Fremantle businesses, including yourself. Michael, you have embodied such a generosity of spirit and willingness to give back since you started Fremantle Tours. How does that authenticity ensure you manage relationships in what is really a highly, highly competitive space? Yeah, I think it's all about what we've come back to is that trust and that genuine nature of just reaching out and going out on a limb and when someone sees that you're ready to embody their business and promote them in a genuine sense, then they're ready to trust you and then you can get a really great insight into their business and the why. And thus, when I can bring a group in to say the Republic of Fremantle, I have a really deep understanding of what has driven that venue to become. So then they get a much deeper experience than just having a gin and that promotes them to come back hopefully and explore a tour there or just to come back and see a bit more around the, the space. And I love that it always comes down to 
the Fremantle Street meetings for us. That's our level of connection. Mm. And that comes to a new venue opening and just knocking on the door saying, hey, uh, I'd love a coffee. I'm Michael from Fremantle Tours and this is what I do. And I sort of know what you're doing, but can you tell me the why? And then it's up to me to sort of weave that into a story that we can promote to our guests. So many being local at the moment is an awesome opportunity to create that excitement about Fremantle again and show them a different version to what they usually experience. And then it's more reasons to come back and gives them a few more threads to check out what they love in Fremantle. Some new things to love in Fremantle. Absolutely. Yeah. And part of obviously your enthusiasm, and we talked about that generosity of spirit and bumping into people and saying, what are you doing? What am I doing? It almost reminds me back in the day of my mother walking into a room and she is the world's greatest referrer because she literally finds out every single person's story and says, have you met so-and-so because they're doing this and we're doing that? And But so much of it, as Claire and I were talking before, some of it isn't rocket science. It's actually opening up those stories with a sense of spirit and a sense of openness and willingness to look outside your business and say, I wonder what they're up to. Maybe I'll go and have a chat to them and then I'll learn something. And I think, Michael, you absolutely do that every day. And one of the things that truly amazes me, though, is how much energy you actually have to engage with all of those people on a daily and regular basis. I mean, you know, you are dealing with hundreds of businesses. How do you keep those relationships going when there are truly so many of them? Well, that is... I was thinking about it this morning. I thought, yeah, I was trying to list the businesses we work closely with and I just stopped because <laughs> every business we walk past, we know the try to know the owner or the why at least, if not the staff, and give them the g'day and that's why they come out the front and have a chat to us. But I think it really, it comes back to that consistent effort and that mm. genuine nature behind it and you wanting to, us wanting to really represent the true reason. So I had the amazing team from Mother on a staff tour just on Monday night and I've worked alongside Emma and Heath for a long time, but they were still telling me things on our tour. They said, can we stop by our first ever venue and have a chat about it and tell our staff? And I wasn't aware of that part of their story. And then now that's part of my story about them. And it's much more genuine. And to then honour, as you said, that modesty kicks in and we had the opportunity to sort of hero both of them to their staff saying, hey, these guys have been on this journey, this evolution. We all know one part of their story and their business. And that goes for all of our businesses, I'd say. But there's so much effort that's gone in to take those leaps and those big steps. Mm. And to then be able to be that conduit to show it off, to excite people, it just makes it... That's where the energy comes from because you want to keep yeah. it coming back to our hometown. And I think that energy and maintaining those relationships consistently, we talk a lot about, for example, our exporters when the bottom fell out of China and, you know, so many of our exporters had put all of their eggs into that basket and then they suddenly had to ring up people like, you know, ringing one of your high school mates and going, hey, Japan, haven't spoken to you in 22 years, but, you know, <laughs> do you want to take our lobsters now? And, you know, that's incredibly difficult to do. So start, some of it is also keeping those relationships alive and consistent because you just never know when the time's going to come when you actually need them. Tom, on that, I'm really keen to hear your perspective on leveraging relationships, particularly corporate relationships with organisations like Fremantle Biennale. Because, you know, in a way, Mark was talking about Fremantle businesses that we all know and love. We kind of, you know, there is an enthusiasm and an excitement. Getting what are large corporates excited about a vision like 
you know, I'm going to build the Republic of Bayswater down on a jetty somewhere. How do you do that? Because <laughs> like, it strikes me there's a gap in objectives. How do you find that common ground that Claire yeah. was talking about? Well, I think it comes back to what we were talking about before, that sense of collective ownership of a place. Fremantle is like a big village. Mm. It's like a stage you step into. And I think if there's real engagement from all the stakeholders that belong and work here, then there's an opportunity and there's a bit of trust that you can actually leverage in a positive fashion. And um, concepts like the Commonwealth of New Bayswater, which essentially asked the question around what's it like to recolonize an existing colony, which has challenging attributes attached to it, can be introduced to um, places like Fremantle Ports and other places who might be quite conservative generally. But by using an artistic guise in many ways and in a theatrical fashion, you can start playing with these ideas. And I think that's an easier model to entertain. And by doing that, um, this notion of breaking away from the moulds might be much more um, approachable and feasible. I think, you know, the, the things, the way we do things, they're all of a temporary nature usually. Mm -hmm. And I think that allows for a bit more tolerance in um, introducing an idea to um, bigger corporate entities that we spoke of before and... So you don't just introduce an idea, do you? You actually get money off them. We get money off them, we do, we do, we do. That's a good point. <laughs> That's quite a, a jump from, yeah, I really like that idea to True. I'm willing to put my hand True. in my pocket and give it True. to you. How because do you it, go about well, it's, that? It's, it's, again, it's about building trust. It's yeah. about bringing an idea which might be really conceptual and really unattainable and unpacking that, having workshops and forums with artists presence getting that stakeholder to be present and to understand um, the whole team, what someone like Jesse Lee Jones is trying to achieve, because mm. it's quite abstract to begin yeah. with. And I think bringing them on board since the beginning makes a huge difference, you know, and I think that long-term relationship building um, also gets them to um, dig deep into their pockets and actually they understand the value of a work like that and what impact it can have for visitors, but mainly for locals, how they get to rediscover a sense of place. Mm, and then that sense of brand association as part of that mm, process. Absolutely, and in absolutely. And a way that kind of breaks down to even a micro level of a customer coming into a shop and creating that experience. They're willing to part with their money once they're part of that whole bigger picture and story. Absolutely. To the idea to buy into an idea rather than the sense of corporate sponsorship is quite exciting. It's mm. a new way of um, establishing partnerships the fact that, you know, someone like the city of Fremantle has been there with us since the beginning, which for which we're very grateful, have understood the, the true value and impact of questioning some of these very things we often take for granted. And I think that long-term partnership and long-term visioning that we have enables some of these great ideas to come into play. And obviously we get support to make that happen. Mm. And that's a lovely segue, I guess, into Matt, your perspective from the city um, that has partnerships with organisations like the Biennale and others. What do you look for out of those sorts of relationships? Because obviously, you know, you can partner with a number of different organisations. What are you looking for um, in terms of the way you partner with um, others? Um, good question. And we, we partner with a big range of diverse activities and initiatives. Um, when we look at things like Biennale, uh, major events, um, things that drive visitation to the city, um, we really look for experiences that reflect our brand and what, what Fremantle is. Um, I don't think you can get any more Fremantle than Biennale. Um, you, you really um, align strongly um, with our, our brand values of spirit, soul and sea. Um, everything you do really nails um, those, those three key pillars. 
um, and you you put us out there. You you raise our profile um, and you you really tell the rest of the world what we're all about and who we want to be. Um, anyone who can do that and and hit our goals like that for us, um, we're going to get behind. Absolutely. So um, similarly with other events, um, we look for. Um, I guess from our side of things in the marketing and the tourism space, we want people to come to Fremantle. That's our objective. We want people to come here, visit, um, enjoy the experience, go away and tell their friends. Um, and we also want um, things that, yeah, put us on the world stage, rate our profile, put us in the media and promote us to the rest, the rest of Western Australia and the world. So um, anyone who can come in there and achieve that for us, we're 100% we're going to get behind in any way we can. Um, we're a small council, so we put forward what we can when we can, um, but we hope that our contributions do help kick things along. And there's so many themes of what we've already talked about, just in unpacking that, you know, understanding that the city has only so much that they can do to help tell that story, aligning and, I guess, Biennale coming with that idea around spirit and sea and soul and saying a sense of place, attracting people by crazy stories that they can then go and share with their friends, you know. There are all of those elements and I think it's so often when people are approaching, particularly corporates in the sponsorship arena or even the media, they're so focused on what I want out of this relationship that they're actually forgetting where those common grounds are of actually understanding that together there's different things that can actually be achieved. And Claire, on that, on media and PR, obviously a lot of how we tell our stories is so reliant on so many different digital channels at the moment and so many different stakeholders responsible for those channels. Is there a different way we build those sorts of relationships or is it consistent with the sorts of things that we're talking about now? Oh, look, I think particularly with the media in Western Australia, the traditional media, TV, newspapers, radio, it's a, it's a, every day it's a more challenging proposition because we have a a diminishing media landscape in Western Australia. And we have to find stories that fit in with the mission of those outlets um, and create the stories that will work for them. So I guess we create relationships with the Western Australian media by delivering to them what they need. So we distill things down, we pitch our stories to specific journalists. We don't, the blanket media release is a thing of the past. Um, and if anyone is ever thinking about sending a media release out for their business, I would definitely, definitely not send it out on, on this because you'll get nothing. Mm. Um, for us, a media release really is a backgrounder. That's how we treat it. It's a fact checker for a journalist. It's a backgrounder. The, you know, some, Online publications may reproduce it word for word, but that's the minority. So I guess relationships are about delivering excellence. We don't pitch to a journalist a story that we know they're not going to want um, and we craft the story to suit the publication. That said, that's traditional media. Our own channels are also super important these days. Um, Doing, putting out quality on our e-newsletters, putting out quality visuals on our social media channels, collaborating with people, sharing in an authentic and genuine way, but also with excellence. Um, if you have a business, 
it's not the job of the junior person to manage your social media channels. It's a really important job. Um, it's a really important job to make sure that you are sending out e-newsletters. They work mm. for just about every business. You know, if you do them properly, if you make them engaging, if you make them aesthetically beautiful, not everybody wants to read. Some people just go to the pictures mm. and they will stop if they see something beautiful. And they'll still keep talking about it, as I do, about your one of those posts that you did when Zoom first came out. I still quote the top ten things not to do it on Zoom that Detail sent out to us very early in the pandemic <laughs> around don't look at yourself because we know you are. And I quote that to a lot of people. So they stick when they're interesting and they're entertaining yeah, as but, well. Yeah, you know, but it's authentic. I mean, yeah. we just developed that purely because we did like three Zooms with clients <laughs> and went, this is really bad. Absolutely right. You Absolutely. Um, just looking now again around that mutual beneficial idea and the fact that relationships, and even when we're talking about relationships with government, if you're getting planning through, you know, it's all the same process of understanding what that individual wants and what your organisation wants and I guess where they meet. How much of it is just intuitively led and how much of it is planning from your perspectives? And I'll throw that open to the whole panel. I'm, I'm going to throw Michael under the bus here. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about relationships and engaging with government and, and stakeholder engagement, um, I remember sitting down with Michael probably three and a half years ago now um, and it was exactly what he said before. Hey, I'm Michael. This is what I do. What do you do? How do I get involved? Um, very casual conversation. Um, I walked away from that meeting going, this guy knows about Fremantle and he's really passionate about it. Um, and I would be really confident having Michael as a champion for our mm. brand. Um, so I think the next, the next thing that came up, um, one of our roles is advocating to government and, and, and marketing agencies. We often get um, state agencies like Tourism Western Australia, Business Events Perth, down to look at our destination so we can show them what we have so that they can sell the state for us as well. Um, and then I go, well, who are we going to get to do this for mm -hmm. us on the ground? Um, I can't do it in my boring suit in my corporate way. Um, that's not Freo at all. Um, oh, I know a guy. So yeah. then we reach out to Michael. Um, and so you've planned your list of government stakeholders, yep. thought about that in a really sort of structured way and then gone, and I know a guy. Yeah. So it's a bit of both <laughs> is what I'm that's, hearing. That's really organic. Um, <laughs> and it's about that um, how do we sell authentic Fremantle, mm. not contrived Fremantle. And I think Michael's ability to in, engage with people and tell them the real story, um, the behind-the-scenes story, um, and walk into the business and clearly show these people that they're almost pretty much mates. Um, and his connection to Freeman having grown up here, that is, that is what we need to sell the destination. It's the champions and the characters who live here and work here every day that is the real part of who we are. And that's actually what visitors want to know and want mm. to experience. So um, I think every single time we've put something out there, Michael has been there. Um, the, the Tourism Council capacity building program, um, any time we reach out our industry um, briefings, Michael's always there trying to learn more about what we do. So um, in general, 
I guess, the biggest tip is. So you just keep your face out there is the yeah. other thing we're learning from there. And I think that's <laughs> definitely true. I don't think we've had a, council, a chamber event that Michael and the team haven't been at as well. So that face and that rec and as Claire, you mentioned earlier, being on the street, being out there helps with the I know a guy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tom, you're creative, obviously. How do you go about balancing that plan? Oh, microphone's coming from everywhere. How do you go about planning versus intuition in this stakeholder relationship? Um, the beginning is very much about intuition, so about feeling who might be ready to receive a new idea, but the rest is very much about planning. So there's yeah. loads and loads of planning. There's formal approvals, there's um, demonstration that this will indeed be a good um, idea, there'll be great impact and accountability behind it. So. I think it's definitely driven by intuition to begin with, but the rest is very much about planning. Um, but, you know, like we said before, um, it's this big village and everyone knows everyone else. We had a big issue a while ago with Main Roads. We had closing the bridge for the event on Friday and closing the bridge takes a lot of planning. You wouldn't mm. believe it, but it takes a lot of planning. And our chair happened to be a neighbour of the... Main roads planning, guys. So that happened very quickly. So <laughs> this, is, this is free map for me. I love it. Do you know what I mean? And that's that thing on the street we're talking about, exactly. So this is like, oh my God, how wonderful that would yeah. be. You know, things like this can happen. But yeah, look, it's a lot to do with planning. And as that well. also happens because you've got your eyes and your ears open. Absolutely. I mean, that could have happened to you in central London Different. because you would have actually been talking to someone going, I've got this problem. And someone goes, hey, I know a guy Absolutely. as well. So, you know, that is part of that attitude of constantly being open and, and sharing mm. what's going on so mm. that people are willing to, to step up. On that, I think I'd love to turn to the audience. Kelly has a microphone if anyone has a question or she's going to come and grab one of the mics. Does anyone have any questions of our panel today just on building relationships? I've got plenty more, so I can jump straight in and then maybe just raise your hand if you think of something. <laughs> yeah, pressure's on. No, not at all. Um, we've talked a lot about um, organisational goals aligning with those of your stakeholders. And I guess, Claire, that's part of your exploratory conversation when you very first start with a client. It does require your client, in a way, to know what their own goals are, doesn't it? Well, you'd like to think so, um, but often they don't. Mm. Often, well, often they do innately, but they can't articulate it. Um, where, and then at other times they do know. So it, sometimes it's easier uh, than it's a more simple process, but sometimes people's goals shift as they mm. explore opportunities and their minds open to different possibilities. Um, it goes back to that audacious you know, and and having courage. Um, it's like, you know, everything the Biennale does. It's audacious. Yeah. If you think of the things that we've experienced, like th they don't just fall in people's laps. That's people being audacious and mm. thinking, yes, we can talk the city of Fremantle into painting the West End. And yes, we can, you know. <laughs> and we can deal with the consequences three yeah, years exactly. later. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, it's a, and, and we, you know, last, you know, Biennale when we, you know, flood the Esplanade with that blue light and yeah. smoke. I mean, it was breathtaking. Um, and I, myself, I can't wait. Friday. I've been, I can't wait for Mumbukai, which is everybody has to come on Friday night, and then tell yeah. the rest of Perth how amazing these things are. Um, so what is the goal for the Biennale? What did they, they're creating beauty and sharing mm. talent and it's up to the rest of us to 
make sure that everybody comes down and it's I, it's just so exciting. Mm. The unimaginable happening in Fremantle again. And being, again and being willing to absorb it and share it and I think you know for those of us I guess that are a little bit more extroverted sharing those stories and getting excited and enthusiastic is a little bit easier. Just from you as an individual any tips for those that perhaps just aren't as comfortable walking into a room, cold calling, bailing someone up on the street and having a wee chat. Just bail them up, they love it. But it isn't easy, is it? I mean, it does take a considerable amount of effort and energy. Does anyone want to contribute to...? Well, I think one thing about Fremantle, if we're talking specifically about our town, is that I have found that everybody in Fremantle is very willing to help another person in Fremantle. Mm. And if they can't help you, they'll generally know somebody who can help you. And they're generally very happy to make that introduction, to suggest a name, to give you an idea or help you on your way. So I, I think if you're a Fremantle business, you don't need to worry about it. You've just got to do it. Yeah because everyone wants to help. And even find ways within your day to do it. So if it's something that you're not comfortable with, make your calls in the morning, you know, have a list of stakeholders that you have to actually engage with on a regular basis. Save the ones that you're really, you know, not so sure about calling for those moments maybe where you just haven't had a brawl with someone, you know. It is a lot of that, isn't it? And it's not driven by competition. This no. It's all about inclusivity and I think that's a great, great trait we celebrate all the time, as you're mm. saying before. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Same, on the same point on how to do it, if you're not accustomed to getting out there and shouting from the rooftops to random people or to really approach an organisation, a lot of what we do is intuitive. There's some broad planning, but when I go to a business, I don't know what they do or their values, and you just have to find out. So every time you approach someone, I now approach it with a really open mind and not how do I slot this into a tour product that I can then sell, but how does this broadly come into our story mm. and it doesn't mean that I talk about it on every single tour but then when you have the right clientele in the room who are really excited and driven by architecture then you can go oh there was this feature let's make sure we touch on that business so it means you it keeps that genuine nature and also there's that trust where you want to just say tell me about it and just have to be really open to be able to put it back out to the world in the right circumstance not the blanket email to every media organisation, you've got to pick it, mm. otherwise it's going to fall flat. So if you just be open mind and everyone who knows me would know it's got to come with a bit of positivity and optimism behind it and then anything can really mm. happen because that community that we live within, it's key, that community is key. It's so true and also that idea that it's an iterative process and I think you mentioned that very early on, Tom, that even in presenting ideas to corporates and others, there's still space for other people to put their stamp or their mark on it. Matt, the, the process, I guess, of building the new Visit Fremantle website, which is really exciting to, to be launching this week, I guess that journey has been a little bit of that, hasn't it, in terms of enabling businesses to tell their story, um, but also creating different itineraries for different people. And how, Do you want to just talk through a little bit about how, that process and how you've changed it along the way? Absolutely. So um, we've, through the working group, um, We've got a lot of insight into um, what businesses need to do or present or how they need to present themselves to, to be interesting to, to other people. 
um, and we've taken on board all of that feedback. What we've found is that simply just having a website with a picture and a description on it is, is not enough these days. And as, as Claire was mentioning, media has changed. You really need to put things in front of people and help them make their decisions for them. Um, we, with the new website, we've taken the approach where um, we're assuming that people are inherently lazy. And if we can build an itinerary for people that maps out a perfect day in Fremantle, then that's easy. You're, you're helping make that decision um, faster and in, in a more easy way. So um, we're finding that if we, we bring an experience together, map it out, um, really profile the businesses and, and the experiences that we think are meeting the expectations of our market, um, then we think we're going to do a better job. And I guess that leads on to the important part is really understanding your market and who mm. you're talking to and who you're wanting to attract. Um, you, you really need to get out there. You can't stay within your walls. And that, that comes out to sort of, yeah, pushing your boundaries and, and building those relationships. Um, I'm, I'm a self-confessed introvert. I couldn't think of anything worse than going into a room <laughs> of 100 people. Um, but I know that it's critical to, to solve problems and get to the solution and adequately do your job. You need to get out there and build relationships. Um, it's the I know a guy thing, as Tom mm -hmm. said. Um, yeah, well, that's actually amazing. The chair of Main Road, it's well done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse trying to close a bridge. But, um, yeah, that wouldn't have happened without that relationship. Yeah. Um, you'd probably still be applying Indeed. through the permit system. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And on that, it goes back to that you know, age-old saying, you can't please all of the people all of the time. And we've talked really positively about forming good relationships, but sometimes relationships go south and you've got to repair them. Does anyone want to comment about... Do we try and please everybody or do you make a line in the sand to say, actually, this is who I am? Anyone willing to uh, explore that one? <laughs> yeah, go, Tom. There's <laughs> someone here with you. I thought you might. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, we, we've, talked, we've chatted about this this morning with Michael. Um, we've got um, some interesting um, conversations around the Orange Pass that's unfolding between the two bridges. Mm. There's a particular group, a very staunch uh, group of residents who... Um, feel that their front yard should be left the way it is and it shouldn't be painted. There's a sense of entitlement and I understand their point of view. It's been the same for many, many years. Um, we've done consulting where we could with the right local governments and particular groups. When you start asking everyone what they would like, designed by committee, nothing ever happens. We know that. And ultimately, I think public spaces and public aspects should be there as um, opportunity to explore, to challenge and stimulate conversation, which this has done in many mm. ways. Some I'm very happy. I have met with them numerous times. It's been a very endearing experience. Um, I, you know, generally I try to please everyone. It's not possible. It's a completely impossible feat mm. to do, and I'm glad it's it's that way, which makes um, a place like Fremantle so interesting in many ways. Not everyone's going to like what you do, but I think giving them the space and opportunity to come and meet with them, to hear their concerns and their problems is part of that initial, let's call it healing process, mm. which might take a few years. Um, <laughs> and whenever you introduce something completely new, of course, there's going to be resistance. Mm. It's a classic human trait. But I think allowing ourselves to have conversations around relationships that may not have gone so well, you expect them to be great and receive with great admiration is all part of this Absolutely. Um, relationship thing. And it do. is understanding your values and your goals. I think, you know, as Claire so clearly articulated early, 
in an example like that, your goal is to challenge and is to create conversations. And naturally, those conversations, if you're challenging people, are not always going to go smoothly. And that applies to whether you're redesigning a bridge, you're creating a new website, or you're just putting your own business out onto the street and into a new landscape. So you really have to honour who you are and what you're trying to achieve, I guess. And as Matt said, take a big deep breath before you walk into the room and try and hold your course through that respectfully. And I think absolutely, you know, it's like dealing with your family, you don't always agree with everyone, but you've got to hold it in sometimes and keep moving. Claire, did you want to add something to that? And I was just going to say, like, sometimes we do make mistakes and sometimes in business we, we might do something and we make an error. And, and relationships are often very easily fixed with a simple apology. Mm. And I think if we do make mistakes in business and we do perhaps forget someone or do something or a business is left off something, we need to apologise. And then once you've said that sorry, the heat comes out of everything mm. almost mm. every single time. An apology and also a really clear explanation mm. as well, isn't there? You know, like if we're looking at sponsorships, you know, corporations can't say yes to everything. But if they've got a really clear criteria that says these are the things we believe in and this is what we say yes to, mm. it actually makes the relationship a lot yeah. clearer, doesn't and it? And sometimes it's as simple as a logo's left off mm. or something, <laughs> you know, like, and in the grand scheme and event, it, it seems like it's the most minor thing. But for that particular business, it was important. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just that simple apology and then things can move forward. And we have all been there, particularly with social media and production lines being so tight. Things do move really quickly. And as you said, we, you know, we've all got examples of where we've upset someone, left off a post, forgot a logo, got someone's name wrong, unable to pronounce their degree. You know, it happens. <laughs> yeah, and an, an apology sometimes takes courage. That's you right. know, sometimes people don't like to apologise. They like to put their head in the sand and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. It takes courage to say sorry, but yeah. it's always worth it. Absolutely. I agree with you on that one. We found mm. a similar thing representing so many businesses and talking about so many people and their stories that that openness has to come in where you're happy to go, oh, I, I've literally just completely misunderstood that. And when you hear it straight from the person, it's much easier to translate. And it's also about owning up to your errors mm. and then making a point of it at, a, at that moment. Or when I go back the next week and say, sorry, I said you were two years old, but you're six years old. That's why yeah. I your business. And we're in our infancy. We've just turned four for our tour, tour business. So early on it was about let's get it behind everyone, how good is Frio? And then over time, those values you were talking about, Denisha, for mm. a larger corporation have slotted in where you say, well, what elements do we love about our town that we mm. want to promote and which businesses now line up with that? So now we're still very broad, but we've had to not apologise but step away from relationships. We said, well, you don't quite represent what I really love when mm. X, Y and Z do. Absolutely. And we've seen that even with, you know, tours on for meals. You can't go to every single business. You know, you are picking one or two or three that reflect the story that you're saying. And again, being able to articulate that is absolutely so important. Any other questions that we've got in the room? Yeah. Awesome. No, it's why we love having you in the room, Simone. Hi. Thanks, Simone from Workshop Done. I've got a question in regards to communication. Open to everybody. How important is face-to-face -face communication. I just feel sometimes, especially younger generation, are losing that ability to talk to one another. Face-to-face. Yeah. Um, -face, yeah, we're here you on TikTok timing. Is that right, Leah? It's all on emails or text messaging. Uh, even my younger clients uh, in hospitality text message me 
and mm. I can pick up the phone and try and talk to them. How important do you think that is? And why are we losing it? Personally, I think it's critical. Mm. Um, you're right. People will often, even in business now, prefer to text message, which blows my mind, yeah. um, or email. But actually speaking to people, pick, you know, pick up the telephone, make an appointment, or just talk to people. You know, it's just vital for creating relationships and developing trust. Um, creating ideas don't come through sending text messages. You've just got to pick up the phone, and you're right, people don't like to do it. It's, uh, you know, I'm often yelling around my office, would you just pick up the telephone? Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, gang. Um, it's, but it's true. Um, yeah, I, no, that's a good question, Simone. I think it's generational, first and foremost. I think, look at the people in the room, I think we definitely prefer a chat and a face-to-face -face conversation. I disagree, I think ideas can come sometimes through other means and medias. I also relate to what you're saying, but I think um, our children have a very, very different way of interfacing. And I think these sort of, um, these avatars they've created actually also have great power in actually um, exchanging and stimulating conversation. But yes, it's, it's a tricky one. I think we grapple with this on a daily basis, mm. <laughs> seeing our kids in that world and us wanting to celebrate more face-to-face -face humanity experiences. But and it requires the receiver as well to want to receive that. And, you know, when we're all so busy and we've got a huge to-do list, I know myself, someone rings up in the middle of that and I'm like, I really don't want to talk to you right now. It's actually allowing ourselves the space to go, actually, it's really pleasant, Claire, when I bump into you in the street and we have a bit of a chat. It's allowing ourselves the permission to actually know that relationships don't just happen on a really punctual timeline and getting through our to-do list sometimes you actually have to let go of. And look, I totally acknowledge that the younger generation are using different forms of communication. However, if we are selling an idea mm. to a journalist, to another business owner, um, we may send an introduction email that says, these are the key points, we're going to call you shortly and discuss this with you. Mm. Because selling an idea takes a conversation, I believe, to do it really well. And if it's particularly if it's a, a little touch and go, you yeah. can get sometimes you can read a person's voice and you can get much more out of it if you've played that. And you're really iteratively well. creating the message, aren't you? Because you're listening to their voice, you can shift it mm. and, and actually reach their goals. Matt, do you have anything? I else? might just speak to the face to face element as well. Um, I think possibly 70 or 80 percent of genuine communication is through body language. So mm. um, if you're texting, even if you're on the phone, you're, you're missing that element where you're building the relationship and getting a better understanding of that other person. Um, and when we talk about relationships and relationships are the key to getting things done and solving your problems, you're not building that relationship if you're texting someone or you're on the mm. phone. Um, and uh, I wouldn't have known a guy if we hadn't yeah. sat down face to face and mm. we continually bump into each other at these events. So, so um, being in person, I think, is critical as well, when, when you can. Particularly in that visioning phase and the sticky phase. And if you're at a sticky point, it's so easy to see how quickly emails or texts can escalate so fast beyond a point of an initial point of stickiness and a difficult conversation. Equally, we've had some really incredible pitches by creatives and artists who's come through a text or yeah. you know, an Instagram reshared post. Really exciting, we've got to meet the person. <laughs> that happens a lot. It does, you know, absolutely. And, and so you're right. Ultimately, to build 
longer, deep-term relationships, you need that face-to-face exchange, but there's also this sort of notion of fantasy and the kind of expectation, how we project someone to be I love someone that. else. Oh. So yeah. It's a very good question, Simona. I think it's it really is, absolutely. <laughs> and like you say, it's also for some people, they challenge, they're difficult face-to-face, yeah. yet they can craft a beautiful that's email that's engaging and witty and funny and you go, I really like that person, you know. So you're right, it is a balance. And again, it comes back to knowing yourself, just like you have to know your business. You actually have to know what your strengths are. Um, and often when I'm talking to a journalist, I'll sell a pitch and then I'll go, but um, if you want a quote from me, I'll send it through on an email because I know I have an ability to craft a message much more clearly when I write than when I speak. And I think, you know, you've got to know that, whereas other people are the complete opposite. I'd actually start to answer also, I think, person to person is key and we often, even when we're making a booking for a large group, I'll go into the venue and say good day, and then they say, oh, look, we'll be able to squeeze you in, whereas if I email it, it's just a no. Yeah. Mm. But on top of that, I keep a little list of all the businesses that I liaise with and their preferred style of communication. So really there's no point me rocking up to a venue, a hospitality venue at 7pm on a Saturday. No point. They're not going to have the time of day. But I do know they're really responsive on social media. So if it's just a quick, hey, how are you going, that for some businesses is really effective. Personally, for me, it's always a face-to-face, but that can put people on the spot. And then if they feel uncomfortable because they prefer to email me, then no one's going to get the best solution. So sometimes I have to take a step back. Mm. I know they want uh, electronic communication done easy. So then that also cuts down my wasted time knocking on a door when they don't want to answer it. And it is that tailoring, isn't it? I think um, Mina might have mentioned it in our recruitment podcast, even when she said, you know, I always make a phone call to an applicant first. And I thought, well, that's such good advice because I always set an interview. The interview can, you know, you know sometimes within a minute and it's not a good thing. Amazing what a difference a phone call before that would make. So you're right, Michael, tailoring different situations and knowing what what you're doing in those and how people respond, really important. Wonderful. Well, I might just run down. If, any more questions from the panel? Yes, Leo, go. It's more towards a question for Thomas. So, Thomas, earlier you said um, when you do something, you can't please, you, you can never please everybody. And, you know, you would probably deal with it all the time because some people like the stuff you're doing and some people don't want any change in their neighbourhood or they don't want any interruption to their lifestyles. Now, when you get into a situation where you've got a, n- a number of stakeholders... And where do you identify which stakeholders are relevant, which stakeholders are the naysayers, and how to make sure that the naysayers don't hijack your process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really good question. Yeah, yeah. I think um, allowing yourself enough time for these conversations to take place is probably a key component of that. And often, not always, some of these naysayers will actually come on board because they've managed to understand and be empowered about the idea. Usually it's because people don't understand what it is and they feel confronted and challenged. So I think allowing time and these group forums to take place, um, they'll come around. Not everyone, understand, but it's impossible to please everyone, as we said. So I think giving them the opportunity and that space to explore why it might not be great for their community is completely valid as well. And I think that in itself often has enough currency to bring about change. And again, it's also understanding and profiling some of those stakeholders beforehand. And if anyone's interested, I've got a really nice model that kind of goes, who's the core that's actually going to make a difference to my project? Like, who's going to help me get something done? Or who's going to cause so much of a fuss that it stops me getting something done? And then work out from that, who are those people influenced by 
is the next kind of round. And then from that, there's just the periphery that are just cruising about doing their thing and understanding the interconnections between the relationships and who's in, who's out and who can make a difference for what you're actually trying to do, I think is a really useful starting point in that, Leo. So that if there's someone making a huge noise but and they're on the periphery and they're not connected to anybody else, it doesn't really matter. But if they are in that inner circle and they're going to stop you getting something done, then you need to be engaging with them and having the conversation. That, did you have... I think it's also really important if you can identify people who are unhappy early and address them very early because misery is contagious yes. <laughs> and they will spread, you know, it, you know, and people, if they don't understand, they, it's very easy for it to spread. So I think often if there are a group of people and some people are unhappy and they ask questions and you genuinely ask them, you might not convince everybody, but you will convince a large number of the group. So it's very important, I believe, to address community dissatisfaction either before it shows itself or as soon as you possibly can. Mm. Community engagement, you know. I think, and particularly we talked about the, the benefits of Fremantle in our passion and enthusiasm. You know, the, there is a huge downside to that. And Claire, as you said, misery does love company. So getting them all together in a room is probably not always the best idea either. <laughs> you know, making sure that you're having one-on-one -on -one conversations with those individuals before that you bring them into spaces and all of those things. People often just like to feel valued mm. and being communicated with, whether it's a note in, you know, a letter in their letterbox, as they go, um, you know, a letter drop, some sort of communication, um, a notification in the newspaper, anything at all, people just like to feel like they have been consulted. And sometimes that is enough to take the wind out of the, the naysayers sales. Mm. And not be scared of the naysayers. I think that's another really important point. As Michael said, everybody's got something to say and something to share. And usually in that conversation, there is one or two things that you can find a value in what they're sort of contributing to the story and the process. I've loved our chat today and I feel like we could keep talking on it all day. I might just wind up by going through the panel. If you had to pick one tip, one piece of advice that you would leave with people about leveraging stakeholder relationships, what would it be? Matt, I might start with you if that's okay. Um, I think be consistent. Um, you have to continually be out there. You, you can't just go out in sort of short and sharp bursts. You need to, to be out there consistently um, and communicating the same thing um, and build relationships. The relationship aspect of it is really important. It's not just about communication, it's about the relationship that comes with it. Tom. I think be bold, but also be honest at all times. Just be mm. truthful, you know, make sure you always are showing the right kind of intent behind your actions. That's wonderful, thank you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Tom, with that. But also, um, if it's in a business relationship um, and you, you need to make sure that the relationship continues to be mutually beneficial for everybody. And if you promise something, make sure you deliver on it. Um, because if you do that, when you come to them again with another offer or another idea, they'll have trust with you. Mm. And so everything, everything comes back to trust when it comes to relationships. It does, absolutely. Trust. I think I'd hark back to what Tom said, is that being genuine about it, but that honesty because at the end of the day, if it's a business-to-business -business relationship where you're both trying to benefit or maybe at one point in the relationship you'll benefit more or they will, you need to build that. So when I approach a, a venue to get a, maybe a discount, I say it doesn't actually have to be cheap. It just highlights the best thing you do. I don't want you to lose money. So if it's just as standing behind the bar, that's awesome. 
I don't want you to do 25% off something. That's mm. no one wins there. So, but if straight up it's wasting their time and fluffing around it, just be really direct, honest. This is what I want out of you. This is how we'll get together, move forward. Mm. It's been really beneficial. Yeah, honesty. Absolutely. I think um, it just reminded me of one of our last um, tourism committees where um, our chair, Natasha, just went, right, you want this, you want this, you want this. So we all clear on what we're here for. <laughs> now let's actually start the conversation. <laughs> Panel, thank you all so much. And, and particularly, I know it's such a busy time with the website launch, a festival launch, and Claire communicating all of that to everybody. Um, <laughs> it's amazing that we've got you here this week and, and what an incredible time for having this conversation. So thank you all very, very much. A big thanks to Chris from CloudVid for doing our uh, amazing um, spread out to the world. So we're live on Facebook now. We'll be live on the podcast from Friday. And, yeah, look forward to uh, continuing this conversation over some pastries. <laughs>